All right, welcome to the Make America Garrett Again podcast, your cure for the mainstream media. This show is your safe space to talk about persuasion, politics, and the effect they have on your life and liberty. Welcome back to another episode. I wanted to do this episode sort of as a continuation of the episode that we put out last week where we talked about this uh, protest or riot or domestic terrorism or whatever you want to call it that happened at the Capitol last week. And I had gotten a lot of questions of people sending me things that were sort of, um, a sort of conspiracy theory in nature, you know, some things about was it possible that Antifa snuck in to make the MAGA crowd look bad? Why would the police just let the people walk right in the doors? All of these different questions that people had that were very concerning. So I wanted to take some time to talk about this, just conspiracy theories in general, and a few of the specific ones and the specific uh, questions and challenges that people had about this particular instance that happened last week. And then at the same time, uh, the House of Representatives is talking about impeaching Donald Trump again, talking about trying to get Mike Pence to invoke the 25th Amendment. Wanted to talk about a few of those things. And then also the other thing that everybody's been talking about over the weekend has been this giant purge that is taking place in social media and across big tech where Donald Trump has been kicked off Facebook. He's been kicked off of Twitter. Uh, Parler was a growing social media platform where a lot of conservatives had gone for free speech. And uh, Apple took that off of their app store and then Google did the same. And then Amazon actually took their servers away so that they didn't have a site at all. And there's been a lot of talk about whether this is right or wrong and what can we do about it and all of this. So I wanted to make sure I gave my thoughts on that as well. Let's start out with the kind of the conspiracy theory angle. A lot of people had have sent me some things asking some questions about what's going on with these things in the Capitol. And, you know, is it possible that these are secret Antifa members who have snuck in to make the Trump crowd look bad and all of those kind of things? And I wanted to take a few minutes just to talk about conspiracy theories in general. You know, a conspiracy simply means people working together to plan something in secret. And that can mean a whole lot of things. You know, a conspiracy theory could mean anything from the mayor of some small town is giving contracts to his friends uh, so that they can make more money and get rich off of his power in office. All the way to this story that made the news 10 or 15 years ago uh, about Barack Obama being in a secret CIA program where he was teleported back and forth to Mars several times. And there was a guy who came forward, talked to several radio stations and that kind of stuff and said that he had met an 18-year-old Barack Obama as he was participating in this program and that numerous times Barack Obama was teleported back and forth to Mars. And somehow, one term conspiracy theory is supposed to cover both the idea that some mayor is doing something unethical in office and something that says that our former president was teleported back and forth to Mars in a secret government program. Um, the level of sanity and insanity in those things are on two completely different ends of the scale. And that's something that I just, it's very, very frustrating to me because uh, when I want to address conspiracy theories on my show and that kind of thing, you have no idea whether I'm going to be talking about capital protests or am I going to be talking about some company secretly putting things in the water to turn the frogs gay. You don't know. And I guess part of that is a, is a good teaser that you're just going to have to tune in to find out. But uh, it's also very frustrating to me because it's hard to address the serious ones and it's hard to talk to people who are seriously concerned or seriously have questions about these types of things without trying to make it sound like you're going to belittle them or that you think they're crazy or out of their mind or whatever when, especially when we live in times where it is so, so difficult to tell what is true and what is not, to tell what is exaggerated and what is not. And, and the way that the corporate media gives us the news doesn't really help us any when it comes to those types of things. So I wanted to spend just a little bit of time kind of talking about conspiracy theories in general and, you know, kind of what makes them attractive to us and what kind of things maybe we can look out for a little bit and then taking on some of the specific ones that were brought up around this Capitol protest and then we'll move on. We'll talk about a couple other things after that as well. Now, what I've always heard, I didn't try to fact check this myself, but it, it seems to check out. I've heard it mentioned several times in several different places was that the, uh, the, the term conspiracy theory really started being thrown around about the same time that the John F. Kennedy assassination happened and that the FBI and the CIA were trying to get that term to catch on to give them a way to sort of classify people who are talking about this crazy idea that maybe John F. Kennedy was killed by someone in the government and uh, that he wasn't murdered by Lee Harvey Oswald as the, you know, the official narrative goes. And so it started out as a way to kind of classify these people as 
crazy people, as people who you don't need to engage with and people who you don't need to listen to. And that in itself really is just an ad hominem attack. People want to call you a conspiracy theorist. They're not taking on the idea that you've presented. Uh, instead, they're simply labeling you as crazy so that they don't have to engage with you and they don't have to interact with your ideas and take those things on and give them consideration. It is very possible that, that maybe Lee Harvey Oswald did kill John F. Kennedy. You know, maybe Lee Harvey Oswald was uh, a communist sympathizer and he didn't like JFK and he wanted to take him out. That is very possible, but there are other things in that story that don't add up. There are lots of things that, that bring us questions. And to simply say that to ask questions about these things and to try to get more information and more clarity on the things that don't add up, to, to call that crazy really isn't fair to the people who are asking questions. And like I said, a conspiracy just means something that has been planned by a group of people in secret. As Michael Malice has pointed out several times, the founding of this country was a conspiracy. At the same time, you could also say that most things done by the FBI and by the CIA are a conspiracy because they're done in secret. They're planned by a group of people because they don't want people to know what their plans are. And this is a perfectly reasonable idea. You know, if you're trying to hunt down some sort of criminal, you're not going to be publishing everything that you're doing so that he can see where you're at and always stay one or two steps ahead of you. Instead, it makes perfect sense to do some of those things in secret. So... When we ask questions about those things, when people bring things up that don't add up, it's really not fair just to dismiss them as a conspiracy theorist. You know, that's not quite fair. And that's something that we're seeing happen right now along the lines of this election. And, and you've heard me talk about the most recent election a lot. You've heard me kind of give a little bit of credit to both sides to say that there are a lot of things in this election that just didn't add up, that just seemed really fishy, that don't make a lot of sense. And some of the counting methods haven't made sense. And a lot of the ways that people have acted and the things that they've tried to do in secret just haven't made sense or they have looked very suspicious. Uh, and at the same time, you've heard me say that a lot of those questions that people have had do have fair and reasonable answers for why they did things the way that they did things and why the results came in the way that they came in. And uh, again, I'm not taking a hard line on this election. It would not surprise me if this election had been compromised in some kind of way. But at the same time, it wouldn't surprise me if it hadn't. And conservatives have repeatedly pointed out how crowded Donald Trump's rallies were. And that people, you know, were just elbow to elbow packed into stadiums and that Joe Biden's rallies had absolutely nobody. And how is it possible at all that this election was even close? And that is a reasonable question. But at the same time, I would say that the reasonable answer to that is that this country has been really split in half over coronavirus for the past year. And Donald Trump's people for the most part, did not take the virus seriously. They did not think it was anything that they really had to worry about. They were not worried that much about catching it. And so when they go out to these crowds and they stand elbow to elbow, and a lot of times they don't even wear masks or whatever, they do that because they're not afraid of what's going on. But at the same time, when you've got Joe Biden's crowd, who is much more concerned about the virus, who is much more concerned about keeping their social distancing and wearing masks and all of that stuff, but... They have big tech on their side. They have corporate America on their side. They have the education system on their side. And so while Donald Trump may have put thousands or tens of thousands of people in his rallies in these stadiums, you've got to realize that at the same time, Joe Biden is effectively having rallies with millions and millions and millions of people. Every time they turn on their television, every time they go to their public school or university classroom, every time they log into social media, everywhere they went where they were reminded to vote or they were reminded how bad the evil orange man in office is, that was a Biden rally. And the reach of that was exponentially farther than anything Donald Trump could do in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And so there's nothing wrong with asking these types of questions. And there's nothing wrong with, I guess, being a conspiracy theorist to the point where we want to look at things and we want to point out things that don't add up, point out questions that haven't been answered. But on the flip side, it's important for us to remain open-minded enough that we try to get answers to our questions that we don't just chalk it up to a conspiracy and say, oh, everything's unfair, everything is against me, that's what it is, end of story. 
that it is important that we actually look for answers to a lot of these things. And that's important to remember because one of the things that really attracts us to conspiracy theories is they can give us an easy answer to why things are the way they are. If you believe that the Illuminati is a global conspiracy and that they're ruling the world and that everything that happens in the world was orchestrated by this group of men in robes in a dark room somewhere, well, then when you wonder why we're having lockdowns or why the value of a dollar is going down or how Donald Trump could become president or anything like that, it's incredibly easy just to say, well, the Illuminati planned it that way. They're the ones who did it. It's all their fault, and they're doing this to control all of us. That may be the answer. That may be possible. But by simply accepting that, it turns our attention away from a whole lot of other things that have been going on for a long time. It turns our attention away from the dangers of populism and the dangers of democracy and the way that humans act in groups and the power of politics to divide people and cause us to back one candidate or another and the types of things that we talk about on this podcast all the time. That a grand conspiracy theory isn't always the answer to everything, but sometimes it's, it's kind of a cop-out so that we don't have to look for answers to everything. And so moving into some of the questions and some of the concerns that people have had about this most recent event where somebody went into the Capitol and obviously the corporate establishment got awfully mad at Donald Trump and his supporters about it. It's okay to ask those questions about whether or not these people really were who they said they were and whether or not they really did what we think that they did. But it's also important that we keep ourselves open for answers to some of those questions. So let's ask the first question. Why was it so easy for these people to get into the Capitol building? Well, when we look at some of the videos of what happened, a lot of times the police simply stepped out of the way and let the crowds walk through. And when you kind of look at it from a police officer's perspective, if you can imagine that you are the one standing there guarding the door, and when there are thousands or possibly tens of thousands of people walking up to the door and it's you versus them, you know that you could easily be overpowered by all of them. You know that there are only so many rounds in your gun that you could fire off before they simply take you over. So it is very possible that that guy who was guarding the door simply ran the numbers in his head very quickly and decided to make a business decision just to step aside. It's also important that we remember that most buildings aren't that well protected. It just doesn't make a whole lot of sense for every single government building in the world to have an army's worth of protection at its disposal because it's not very often that you get crowds of thousands of people converging on one building. And even if that did happen on a regular basis, how would you know which building it was going to be today? You would simply you know, take up all your military's might, uh, stuffing them in every single government building. And most of the time, they're not going to have anything to do. They're just going to be standing there. And so I think it's very, very possible that the Capitol was not that well protected because most of the time people don't converge on the Capitol. They just weren't prepared for the volume of people that they received that day when the amount of protection that they've had every single day for the last 250 years has been perfectly adequate. Just like with anything else, the perception of power, the perception of order, and the perception of strength that law enforcement or the ruling class or whoever has is far stronger than their actual strength. The U.S. government doesn't have to physically hold off every single citizen of the 300 million citizens in the United States. They simply have to appear strong enough to make sure that most of those people think that they don't stand a chance even if they did try something. And that's the way it's going to be at the Capitol as well. I would say that the Pentagon and the White House may be a little bit more protected than that, just given the status of the people that are in those places so often. But again, if, if everybody decided that they were going to converge on one of those places, there's a good chance they're simply not prepared for it. Uh, another thing somebody sent me was a screenshot of a news story about the pro-Trump protesters clashing with the police, and it was posted at 9.30 in the morning. And, of course, we know that the, the Capitol wasn't overrun until sometime in the afternoon. It was like 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, something like that. 
But this story was posted at 9.30 a.m. I think there are a couple explanations for something like this. First of all, a lot of these websites are set to show your local time. So uh, if something happened at 12.30 p.m. Eastern time in Washington, D.C., uh, it's going to show 9.30 a.m. Pacific time in California. So you could very easily be pulling up that screenshot from uh, another part of the country. Uh, you could also, if you have a VPN, you could very easily set that VPN to show from a different area. You know, I think uh, even if you're in Hawaii, I think Hawaii is, you know, eight or nine hours earlier than the Eastern time zone. So uh, if something happens, again, at, at 12.30 in Washington, D.C., it may show... I don't know, 4.30 in the morning or something like that in Hawaii. That doesn't necessarily mean that this story was published ahead of time uh, because of some you know, grand conspiracy to make Trump people look bad or something along those lines. Uh, another thing that happens, and you see this a lot when it comes to sports writers, is they will actually write their stories before the event actually happens so that when the game is over, they're able to click the publish button and they're able to get their story out immediately because we know in the world of news, you've, you've got to be fast. It's kind of like Ricky Bobby. If you're not first, you're last. And so you got to get that story out there as quickly as possible. So when it comes to the sports world, a lot of times they will write the story about the game as the game is happening. And they'll have as much filled in as they possibly can so that they can just take a few quick seconds at the end of the game and plug in the key stats, maybe plug in exactly how the game ended and they can hit publish and it's already ready to go. But most of the time, especially if the game has been clear from a certain point on who was going to win, it's very easy to have that story already written and already completed. And in the same way, we knew, we've seen how protests have worked in this country uh, for the past year, especially. Um, we know if there's a protest, there's a very good chance that it's going to turn a little bit violent. We know they're going to probably clash with the police. It's also very possible that the woman had the majority of this story written ahead of time, and it may have accidentally been published early. Uh, again, it may have been published and it showed up differently in a different time zone. Whatever it is, when you look at the number of journalists that are in this country, uh, I seriously doubt that some grand conspiracy is going to be leaked to uh, a bunch of random journalists for them to get their stories crafted and post them ahead of time. There are just better answers to something like that to happen. Um, seen some other claims that uh, these were not pro-Trump protesters from the MAGA crowd, but instead that they were members of Antifa and they were just trying to make the Trump people look bad so that everyone would be mad at them. Well, yeah, this is certainly possible. The problem with that was when all of these people were just protesters out in the streets and they were carrying their Trump flags and, you know, the Confederate flags or whatever else, and they're cheering to make America great again, and they are yelling that Trump is their hero and we need to recount the votes and we need to take the election back and all of this stuff, all of these Trump people were awfully supportive of them then. And it wasn't until something bad or something controversial happened that suddenly they're accused of being members of the opposite political party in the, the enemy class just trying to make them look bad. And it kind of reminds me of, I don't even remember which terror group it was back when it, when it started, but there was, a, there was a while there where, you know, we had some terrorist attacks and they were from Al-Qaeda or Taliban or ISIS or whoever. But then there would be, you know, a random mass shooting. And the media and the police would be trying to figure out who did this and how it happened and what caused it and all of this. And, you know, whatever terror group would pop up and say, oh, this was us, this was us, this was our attack. And you would soon find out later that it wasn't their attack at all. They were just simply trying to take credit for it. And occasionally there were things that were just pure accidents, like a plane crash or, you know, a crash on the subway or something along those lines. And you'd still see whatever terror group popping up, you know, this was us, this was us, this was us. And at some point it almost became laughable because it was like, no, uh, the Taliban did not cause this volcano to explode in some random corner of the earth. Sometimes things just happen. Sometimes people do bad things. Sometimes there are accidents, whatever it is. You can't just go claiming that all of this was done for you to promote your brand of radicalism to the world. And I think we're kind of seeing the opposite thing happen now whenever any kind of protest or any kind of political movement gets out of hand, that when something bad happens, suddenly we blame it on bad actors. And then we're all behind these people for a while. And then when something goes wrong that's going to upset people, well, maybe it was the other side that had just snuck in and they were just wearing our colors or they were just chanting our slogans or whatever it was so that they could make us look bad and make everybody hate us. And 
one, I just think that that's kind of dishonest. That's kind of silly because you know from listening to this podcast, from listening to the mob mentality episode, just from seeing the way that people act when their team wins a Super Bowl, that when people get in crowds, they do crazy things. That if you go to a protest, especially if it's one that's going to be heated and they're going to be counter protesters, you've got to realize that there is a very good chance that things are going to get out of hand and someone is going to do something stupid. And it's ridiculous to suggest that your side is perfect and is not going to do anything wrong and everybody is good and wholesome and loving and salt-of-the-earth people and that it's just those terrorists on the other side that would do something to try to make you look bad. It's just way too easy to jump onto that kind of thing. And at the same time, yes, it is also very, very easy for someone to dress up in the other side's colors or clothes or whatever. It's very easy to make a, a fake account. I could do that right now. I could make a Twitter account and I could say that I am from Antifa and Antifa wants everyone to throw their puppies out the window today. And it won't be long until some conservative picks that up, screenshots it, and says Antifa is calling for everybody to throw their puppies out the window. The problem is there's a, a level of anonymity on the internet, and there is an ease to create accounts and to, to try to act like other people that it's very, very, very difficult to tell, maybe even impossible, to tell what's serious and what's not. Titania McGrath is my favorite Twitter account because she goes way, way over the top trying to act like one of these radical progressives as a form of satire. But there are people who are going to see that every day. There are people who are going to see Babylon Bee articles or the Onion articles and not pick up the satire that's in it. And there are other people who are simply going to lie about those things. And there are other people who are going to make accounts and simply tell lies or simply be misleading for the sake of being misleading. And you just don't know whether or not it's real. And it's almost pointless to spend a whole lot of time worrying about it. Because by the time you've got something figured out, the rest of the world has moved on without you, and that person's probably deleted the account anyway. And Scott Adams had said on Twitter that, you know, we're kind of getting to the point where when it comes to bad actors at protests and when it comes to the ability to make fake accounts in the name of your enemies, uh, we're almost losing free speech to an extent because of how easy these things have become to do. and. It's just something that you've got to remember that people are going to fake things and people are going to make things up. And so it's important that you don't just bite on the first sensational thing that you see. And it's also important that you probably don't put yourself in situations where you could be made to look bad, especially, you know, in group settings and stuff like that. Maybe be careful of the people that you allow to protest with you or maybe don't go to those protests at all and find a better way to show your activism. Whatever it is, you've got to understand that these kind of things are possible and you've got to be on your guard for them. And a lot of times the, the best action is just simply not to be there at all. And then the last thing that I had seen, uh, and this isn't necessarily a conspiracy theory or anything like this, but one thing that I had seen going around a lot was that if these protesters storming the Capitol had been black, they would have been shot. That this would have been a very bloody and violent affair. And that this is proof of the white supremacy and the white privilege in our nation because the way that this protest turned out versus how it may have turned out if the people storming the Capitol had been African-American. And I think, first of all, going back to our last episode where I compared the Capitol protests to the Black Lives Matter protests, I think these things were awfully similar. They just happened in a couple of different locations. But if we look to the Black Lives Matter protests, there weren't that many people that got shot. Considering the size of the protests and how many different places in the country were going on, there wasn't a lot of blood that was shed there either. So I think that that puts that theory into question a little bit, but then we get to the speculation of, well, what if it were these people taking on the Capitol? And I think that the biggest difference is not the color of the skin of the protesters, but the fact that a lot of these pro-Trump protesters were armed. And I heard varying reports as to whether or not they were all carrying guns when they stormed the Capitol or whether none of them were carrying guns or, you know, whatever thing it was in between. But there's certainly going to be the idea that with 
uh, Republicans and conservatives and Trump people being so pro-gun and pro-Second Amendment that um, you're at least going to consider that there's a very, very good possibility that a lot of them may be carrying their weapons concealed or anything like that. So the idea was that these people were armed and that the African-American population largely isn't when it comes to those protests and that kind of thing. And I think that that is the huge, huge difference because when you get two groups of people and they both know that the other is armed and your group has their guns pointed at me and my group has our guns pointed at you, we all know that the second someone pulls the trigger, a whole lot of other triggers are going to get pulled as well. And that even if I pull the trigger first, I know there are going to be several people on your side pulling triggers as well, and that I'm going to lose lives on my side as well. And that's where we, we get this phrase, an armed society is a polite society. Because the consequences for escalating violence are much, much higher than they would be if only one side is armed. And so instead of saying that this would have been some sort of massacre had the protesters at the Capitol been black, I would argue that if the protesters at the Black Lives Matter protests were well-armed, then the police would be a whole lot more hesitant to start bashing heads in and pepper spraying people and doing all this stuff to escalate the violence because they would know that there was a very possibility that it could cost them and members of their teams their lives as well. And so, of course, the media is going to play this up as if it's some kind of thing about threatening war or whatever. But I think a lot of times these people arming themselves is not just an offensive means, but instead it's a, it's a defensive measure to make sure that they remain safe and that they're not at the mercy of someone who is protected by qualified immunity the way that we know they are, if you've listened to previous episodes of this podcast. So moving on to this impeachment thing, I remember first seeing uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez tweet that they needed to impeach President Trump again. Uh, I believe it was on Tuesday, and those protests at the Capitol were on Wednesday. And then uh, the next day on Wednesday morning or early Wednesday afternoon, I saw Ilhan Omar tweeting the same thing, that they needed to impeach the president, that they needed to do it now, and it was important that they do this. And immediately what I thought when I saw this was that uh, what you've seen reported from Unbiased America and a couple other places since then just a little bit slow getting to it, but that they want to impeach him because they want to make sure that there's no chance of him running in 2024. And if they do successfully impeach Donald Trump and then proceed to vote to remove him from office, then that would prevent him from holding office at any time moving forward. So that would keep him from running again in 2024 because he had been impeached and removed from office. And it's my understanding the way that Chris Ann Hall has explained this, that they can even impeach him and give him the hearing or whatever to remove him from office even after he has left office. Uh, this was something that Chris Ann Hall had brought up several times about Hillary Clinton, that after her a lot of her mistakes and a lot of the scandals and the kind of things that happened with her as, was it Secretary of State? I think she was, with the, the email and with Benghazi and with all these other kind of things that have happened that would just say that she is unfit for office and that even if they impeached her after she had lost the 2016 election and didn't have any position, that that would keep her from running again and keep her from retaking that office. And according to Christian Hall, this is something that we need to do much more often, that, that these politicians who get caught up in scandals and they resign or, you know, they get voted out because of whatever kind of misconduct or whatever, uh, that they shouldn't just get to slink off into the shadows and wait for things to die down before they decide to come back and try to run again, but that they should be impeached even if they leave office. And again, looking at this here, that looks like something that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the other representatives in the Democrat House of Representatives are trying to do. Uh, they can easily have the votes to have him impeached again, and of course, then it would just be a matter of whether or not the Senate would vote to remove him from office due to that impeachment. So that's something that they're talking about, and this is something that could very well also happen after he leaves office, and then you know that the Democrats have a majority in the Senate as well, if you count Kamala Harris as the vice president to get that tiebreaker vote. And uh, this is something that they really, really could do, but it was something that they were talking about even before this whole thing with the protests happened. And now 
the protests have given even more fuel for the fire for them to do this for Donald Trump fueling this insurrection or however it is that they want to put it. Uh, from what I understand from just a couple of people I've, I've talked to, uh, I think maybe only one person has ever been impeached after they've left office and then he wasn't actually convicted uh, to be removed from office. But it is certainly possible, again, that they're going to have the votes if they choose to do so to make sure that Donald Trump is impeached and removed from office even you know after he leaves. So uh, that's something that we are going to keep an eye on. In my opinion, I also think that they may be looking to do this just so that they can kind of close the Trump chapter in the history books and that they can just simply say that this was an anomaly, that this was something bad that happened, that this was a mistake that we had where this one bad man got it voted into office and for four years everything was bad, but that at the end of the four years democracy was restored and the bad man went away and we never heard from him again and everyone lived happily ever after it. And I think that that's certainly possible that that's the kind of kind of narrative that they want to push in all of this. And there is a lot of concern right now from conservatives. Of course, we'll talk about uh, the purge from big tech and all that stuff here in a few minutes. But there is you know, concern that these next four years are going to be revenge for everything that happened during the Trump administration. And they're going to be figuratively or literally, you know, hunting down Trump supporters and making them pay for all their crimes and, and on and on and on. And I kind of feel like maybe it's not kind of the opposite. Maybe they're just going to try to memory hole this and pretend that 2016 to 2020 never happened and that Donald Trump was bad and now he's gone and all of that is over with and that they will completely ignore a lot of these people in the news cycle just to show that they've restored some kind of normalcy and just to show that everything is back to normal once you get the right people back in charge and that everything's okay again. And I kind of think they're probably going to to lean toward that more so than making sure that every single deplorable Trump supporter suffers the consequences of who they've you know supported or anything like that. I just think that it's probably going to be, as, as Michael Malice has pointed out on Twitter, the cathedral is very forgetful. Uh, they tend to try a lot of the same methods over and over again. And I think in this case, they're just going to pretend that everything is peachy and everybody's happy and everything is great, no matter what the conservatives say, because honestly, they've got majorities in the executive and legislative branches now, so it doesn't really matter what the conservatives think. The other thing is, uh, I believe it happened, I'm recording on Tuesday the 12th, I believe it happened today, it was expected to happen today anyway, the House was going to pass a resolution asking for Mike Pence to invoke the 25th Amendment to remove Trump from office. So if we can't impeach him, maybe we can, you know, toss him out using the 25th Amendment. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the background of the 25th Amendment. Uh, Brian McClanahan had two great shows this week, and I will add at least one of those. You'll be able to find the other one, you know, right next to it if you use just one link, but talking about this, this kind of tech purge and about the 25th Amendment. And uh, I, don't have, I don't have good notes here. I'm just kind of doing a lot of this from memory, so the details will be fuzzy, but if you want to go back and listen to his episode to get the details down, then you're more than welcome to do that. Uh, but the 25th Amendment was brought about in, I think it was like the 1950s, with Dwight Eisenhower, I believe it was, if I'm remembering cl- correctly, somewhere around that time. And uh, whoever it was, the president was going in for heart surgery, and they realized that he was going to be completely incapacitated for like six, eight, ten hours, something along those lines. And they realized that there needed to be, you know, some kind of chain of command set up so that if something did happen while the president was under anesthesia, under the knife, uh, that there was someone with the authority to make calls about war and defending our country or whatever kind of emergencies or whatever kind of things could come up that they wouldn't just be waiting for the president to finish his heart surgery before they could take drastic action if, you know, nuclear war broke out or anything like that. So, you know, they, they kind of got together, they talked about it. The, the amendment made a lot of sense because, you know, we already knew that if the president dies, the vice president's going to take over. So it would just make sense that the vice president would fill in for him while he's incapacitated and then he would take power back as soon as he's capable of taking the office back. Um, you're going all the way back to uh, John Tyler. I think he was the first vice president to take over after a president had died in office. And Constitution didn't actually really say what was supposed to happen if the vice president took over for the president. So so when the president died and John Tyler took over, no one really knew whether he was supposed to just kind of hold, like be like an interim president until they could hold another election and fill the spot, or, you know, if he was to become president, or if he was just to kind of hold the office for emergency purposes and not really do anything unless they absolutely had to. And instead, he kind of took the office and basically said, I'm the president now. And they kind of went with it. And that set a precedent. And moving forward, 
There were several times, you know, in the 1800s, we had presidents who assassinated or who died in office, and uh, they just kind of followed the precedent that the vice president would take over. And so uh, just as kind of a continuation of that, they decided that it made sense that the vice president would fill in for the president if he were ever incapacitated for a short time, and that if anything ever did happen where he were comatose or had gone crazy and lost his mind or whatever it was, if he was if he was completely incapable of holding the office in a reasonable manner or whatever, the, the vice president could basically petition for him to be removed from office under the 25th Amendment. Uh, I think they need some support from the cabinet members to do that as well. And I can't remember if the Congress has to vote on it or not. Uh, but if the president does think that he is fit for office and he wants to challenge it, then he can he can give a challenge within four days or something like that. And then at that point, certainly the Congress has to vote on it and decide which way they're going to go with it. Uh, I think the only time that it's ever really been seriously considered to be used was during the end of Ronald Reagan's second term, where his Alzheimer's was really starting to set in. And uh, I honestly, I, I don't know what that was like in the White House, but I imagine he was becoming very forgetful and very confused. And when you're talking about dealing with uh, the world economy and potentially going to war with nations all over the world, it's probably not very good that the president starts forgetting things and kind of fumbling his words and his thoughts and that sort of thing. And so they were genuinely concerned uh, that they may have to invoke the 25th Amendment, but they managed to kind of limp it through to get Reagan out of there and get George H.W. Bush in. And then Brian McClanahan pointed out that in, I believe it was 1992, when George H.W. Bush was president, uh, they added the line of succession where the president, if he dies, the vice president becomes president. If something happens to him, the Speaker of the House is president. And then they go all the way down, Secretary of Energy, Secretary of Defense, all of those different things. So that hopefully, no matter what happens, no matter what kind of nuclear attack happens or how many people they take out, hopefully there's somebody on down the line that can take over as president at that point and there's not any kind of struggle for power or anything like that. So, on his face, the 25th Amendment makes a lot of sense. I mean, there's really nothing wrong with the logic there. There's nothing wrong with the concerns that people had. And in a way, it was also sort of just a formality to clarify what we were already doing, that it, the vice president would take over in the event that the president had died or, you know, couldn't serve in office or anything like that. But when you look at what's going on now, this type of situation is not what the 25th Amendment was designed for. For the vice president, Mike Pence, to say that Donald Trump has gone crazy and that he's mentally unfit to hold the job of president and then to try to have the cabinet members support him and have Congress support him by voting President Trump out of office because he's crazy that would essentially just be a coup. I mean, that would essentially just be overthrowing the leader because as much as we may hate Donald Trump, as much as you may think that he is horrible, you may think that he is racist, you may think that he's some sort of crypto-fascist, that he's the, the new Hitler, whatever it is, he's not mentally defunct. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he wants to do. He knows what you know a lot of his policies are. and. Just because you can disagree with those very intensely, it doesn't mean that he is, you know, at the point where Ronald Reagan was, where Alzheimer's was just eating his brain away. This is simply a man with a lot of bad opinions that we disagree with on a whole lot of things. And so really what this is, is it's just being used as another arrow in the quiver for Democrats to try to get rid of Donald Trump, to have him removed. And of course, in the same way, if you can impeach him and remove him from office and block him from ever taking office again, at the same time, if you could have him declared crazy, uh, it would be very difficult for him to, you know, kind of overcome that in a way where he could you know, try to come back and try to take back the presidency or anything like that, especially after he's already lost the election. You're also going to have trouble getting a lot of the Republican Congress and that kind of thing to support him if if he were somehow determined to be crazy and removed from office. So it's just them trying everything they can, just shooting whatever shot they've got to make sure that they can hopefully get rid of this guy. And uh, the truth is Mike Pence isn't going to go for that. Mike Pence is not that guy. And he's not one to rock the boat. He's very standard, straightforward Republican politician. And Mike Pence is going to be considering what he can do in the future in the Republican Party. That when there's another Republican president to take over, what position is he going to have? Could he possibly run in 2024 or 2030? Because he was the vice president. And of course, that gives him some sort of credibility as a future run for president. And uh, he's not going to be the one to, to try to throw his president out 
10 days before he's going to be gone anyway. So it's just not going to happen. It's just not something they're going to do. So uh, don't worry about the 25th Amendment. The impeachment is to be determined. We'll see what happens. Uh, It's very possible that once Joe Biden takes office, they just lose interest with this and just move on from it. Donald Trump promised us that we were going to lock Hillary up. You know, when the crowd chanted, lock her up, lock her up, he said they were going to put her away. And then what was like a week after he became president, they asked what was going to happen to Hillary. And he was like, ah, we're not going to worry about that. We're just going to let her go. So um, very possible the same thing could happen to Donald Trump. And uh, again, we'll see what happens. We'll see how hard they work to try to erase his legacy or his his history or his effects or whatever on on the country and on the state of politics. But I really think that they're going to do their best just to pretend like this never happened and just get it as far out of their memory as possible. Because as long as they keep stirring things up about Donald Trump, they're also going to be stirring up Donald Trump supporters and they're also going to be giving them someone to oppose. So if this United America or whatever it's called that Joe Biden is going to be pushing in his first hundred days of office, you want people to be united. You need to stop focusing on the things that divide them. And Donald Trump is certainly one of those things. So at the same time, all of this stuff is going on. We have had Donald Trump removed from Facebook permanently. Donald Trump was banned from Twitter for 12 hours after these protests because he supposedly incited them. Uh, Then later on, Twitter decided to permanently ban him. All the Republicans picked up their things, took their passwords and went over to Parler. And very quickly, Apple decided they were going to take Parler off of their app store. Google quickly did the same thing. And then right after that, Amazon decided to take Parler off of their servers. So within like 24 hours, Parler was just gone. And they're scrambling, trying to find what they are going to be able to do to get their site back up. But of course, a lot of their financial support is being pulled away as well. Because as far as the corporate world is concerned, Donald Trump is toxic and nobody wants to be associated with him or associated with his following. And so they're they're all running from that. And that gives us a lot of concern, especially people on the conservative side, because they feel like their views are being silenced and they feel like they're being kicked out of these places and that they are not allowed to have free speech because Facebook is banning them or kicking them off and Twitter is banning them or kicking them off. And of course, this hurts their abilities to gather and to craft their message and to encourage each other and all of these different things. And then when they try to go to another place, uh, quickly, that place is just kind of erased off the map. And so that's been a big concern. You've seen a lot of people talking about that this week. And of course, you're going to see plenty of opinions on that. You're going to have people on one side arguing that this is suppression of freedom of speech, that this is kind of a violation of the First Amendment and all of this stuff. And then you're going to have at the same time what a lot of the left is coming back with is, hey, you said that a private company could do what they wanted. You said that a private company could kick somebody out of their business or out of their platform if they wanted to. And now that it's happening, you're the ones who are upset about it. And There's certainly some merit to that. I mean, that is something that we believe in. That is something that if you are using my service or you are on my property and I decide that I want to kick you off, as long as I'm not doing any physical harm to you by kicking you off my property, then you need to leave. I mean, that's just the way that it is. And so what makes it so complicated and so difficult is that there doesn't really seem to be anywhere that's safe for these people to go and that... Again, they they tried to go to Parler and suddenly everybody just wiped Parler off the map and they were gone. So what's going to happen with all of this? And another question that a lot of people have asked is, is this something new? Is this something that is completely unprecedented that you're going to have one side completely silenced when it comes to the issue of president or, you know, a lot of the political talk and political discussions that we're having today? And Really, throughout American history, I'm sure probably throughout world history as well, censorship has been pretty common. I mean, when you are the class that's in power, you're going to do what you can to try to make sure that you keep that power. And anybody else who's coming up against you and trying to take that power away or trying to tell you that you're wrong for what you're doing and and try to stop whatever agenda you're trying to accomplish, you're going to want to push them out of the way. You're going to want to try to silence them so that you can do what you want to do. I mean, even today, if you were to get Ron Paul as president today and the libertarians who are all about free speech and free markets and all of these kind of things took power, and had their way, there would still be an effort from them to to silence a lot of the opposition to the kind of things that they were doing. There would still be people who would be crying out that we need to regulate this industry and that industry, and there were people that crying out that we need to do this to protect welfare and protect the poor and all of these kind of things. 
And a, a lot of the message from whoever in power would be, you know, just shut up and leave us alone. We've got a job to do. We're going to try to do that thing because we think that this is best. And you're going to see that from any group of people, any person or group of people in any kind of position of power whatsoever. Even on this podcast, I get people who write in and send me questions or send me memes that are just supposed to be some kind of gotcha. And they think that they're being smart and uh, instead they're just being rude. And so those kind of things just get ignored. They just get tossed in the trash bin and I don't give them time of day. And if you're being honest and you genuinely have a question or you know you genuinely have a concern about one of the things that we've talked about, then we take it on. And uh, you've heard me answer listener questions and talk about a lot of these things a lot of times, but there are also going to be people who are just trying to be rude or just trying to be divisive or who are just trying to be obstructionist or whatever, just to try to get in the way. And those people are going to be ignored here and they're going to be ignored if I were president, whatever it is. Um, those kind of things would just get tossed aside because we, we don't want to deal with all those things. Um, Brian McClanahan talked about how the constitutionalists did a lot in the 1780s to shut down the anti-federalists, that they did things to kind of limit the amount of time that they were able to speak and that kind of thing when it was up for debate about whether or not we were going to switch from the Articles of Confederation to this new constitution. There were uh, plenty of people who were not in favor of Reconstruction in the South for 30 years after the Civil War. Uh, those people were just pretty much completely shut out. They weren't allowed to have really anything to say because nobody wanted to hear it because they weren't the ones who were in power. I mentioned that the, the far left liberals were really shut out during World War I, that nobody wanted to hear what they had to say because we had this war and we had a job to do and that's what we were going to do. So that kind of thing is going to be fairly common. It's going to be tempted to shut out people who disagree with you. It's going to be uh, at the very minimum, you know, you're, you're going to just ignore them. You're going to let them go and just leave, have them leave you alone. But if you are trying to do something, especially in a, in a democracy government type setting, uh, you're going to want the people to support you. And so it's going to be important that you don't have people who are opposed to you trying to change the will of the people as you're trying to, to get your agenda carried out and taken care of and all those kind of things. So while this has happened a lot in the past, this is the first time it's ever happened to a president. The, to have a president's ability to, to communicate with people taken away, you know, whether that be through his Facebook or through his Twitter account, that's something that's never really happened before. And that's something that's a pretty big step. But at the same time, he was using platforms that had been developed by people who were ideologically opposed to him. And so for them to kick him off of his platform, one could argue is definitely a their prerogative to do. If you're at my house and you're doing something that I don't want you to do, you're you know using some substance that I don't want on my property, uh, I can have you removed. And no one would give that a second thought. And so when Twitter or Facebook does that, uh, of course it's difficult because you wonder where else they're going to go. But at the same time, that's their platform. And that's what they've chosen to do. And, but when it comes down to it, I think it's pretty easy for us to see both sides of this. And I think that it is, it's kind of frustrating when the, the argument that I see coming from most conservatives is, yeah, I believe in property rights, but this time it's not okay because they're shutting down free speech. You know, I believe that they can do whatever they want on their platform, but because it's happening to me and it's not happening equally to people on the other side that I oppose then this time it's unfair and I, I don't agree with it and I want the government to step in and do something about it. To me, that's problematic. And so when we talk about peace, property rights, and free markets being the principles that we base this show off of and we look at property rights and we say this is my stuff and I can do what I want with it as long as I'm not physically harming anybody else, then I think that leaves us with the position that these are private companies and they can do what they want. Now, that doesn't mean I have to agree with it. That doesn't mean I have to support them. I can still complain about it all I want. I can still boycott them. I can still encourage other people to boycott them if that's what I choose to do. I can also criticize them from a strategy standpoint. That this is not going to work out well for big tech and for the corporate media and for everybody who's cheering them on as their enemies are removed from Facebook and Twitter. Mike from the Don't Status on Me blog, and I'll put a link in the show notes so you can read it, has a great piece about how he thinks that this is going to backfire on them. That he thinks that even though they have the right to do this, this is strategically a bad move for the things that they're trying to accomplish. And that this is ultimately going to strengthen the conservatives instead of weakening them or taking them out as they think they're doing. It's a quick, easy read. Make sure you go check that out when you're finished with this podcast. But the biggest thing I want you to take away from this conversation about censorship and 
from this conversation about big tech purging all these people that they don't want from their platforms. The thing I want you to take away is that you reap what you sow. Sometimes we get ourselves into a position uh, where we're going to have to suffer a little bit and hopefully we learn a lesson from it. If you spend yourself into bankruptcy, you're going to have to suffer a little bit while you pay off some debt and build up your savings again and get your financial affairs back in order. You get yourself addicted to drugs, you're going to suffer through the withdrawals of that addiction while you work to get your life clean and wean yourself off of that substance to get yourself sober and get yourself right again. And if you hand over all of your journalism, all of your current events, all your ways of communicating and gathering and making money to people who hate your guts and want to see you starve, then guess what? You're going to hurt a little bit while you figure out how to find a new place to set down your roots. You may have to wander in the technological desert for a little while trying to find the right parlor or the right MeWe or the right Gab or whatever thing it is that's going to be the proper home for conservatives. But if you allow people who think so differently from you and believe so differently from you and have values so differently from yours, you let them have the power of the technology you use and the schools that you send your children to and the news that you read and the narratives that you form your worldview around. And you've got nothing of your own to fall back on. And if that gets pulled out from under you, it may take a little bit of work to get those things built back up the way that you want them to be and in a way that you feel comfortable and safe. So look, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know where we're going to land. I promise you uh, I will be there once it finally gets set up and starts going in the right place. And I will still be on Twitter and Facebook probably because I want to be able to reach people from all different ideologies and all different types of views. And I have a lot of in common with both of you. And I also think that both of you are wrong on a lot of things. So uh, I want to make sure that we can join on the right things, that we can fight about the other things, and that we can get people to buy into liberty as much as possible. And wherever that is, whatever site that's on, whoever owns the servers, that will all be figured out eventually. Somebody will find a way. There's a lot of money to be made. There's a lot of power to be gained. There's a lot of conversation to be had. And we're going to make it happen. And I am so glad that you're listening to this podcast with me as we look forward to finding out how it all plays out. That's all I have for today. Uh, if you have any questions, if you have anything that you want to talk about, please reach out to me. I am on twitter.com slash Garrett again, facebook.com slash Garrett again. You can email me, Garrett again at pm.me. I am also on MeWe. My username is first name Garrett, last name again. I think you can also do like mewe.com slash Garrett again. I'm not completely sure. I feel like a boomer. I don't really know how to use this new technology, but... We will get it figured out. I'm trying to learn how to use it. And uh, you just find a way to reach out to me and I will do my best to respond to you. And I thank you so much for listening. And I will be back with another episode soon enough. And until then, stay kind, stay vigilant, stay free. Get out of here. <laughs>